It's my pleasure tonight to introduce to you, to you guys, Diana Rogers. Uh, Diana wears many hats, uh, including probably many more than I'm gonna mention here. Uh, but Diana is a registered dietitian. She's the host of the Sustainable Dish podcast, a farmer, and of course, a producer and director of the film Sacred Cow, and also co-author of the book with the same title. Fantastic read. We're also joined by Alejandro Carrillo. Alejandro is a regenerative rancher in the Chihuahuan Desert and is currently consulting for Understanding Ag to assist ranchers across the U.S., and adopting adaptive grazing management on their operations. Alejandro is also director of the nonprofit, and sorry if I butcher this, Alejandro, my, my Spanish isn't that great, uh, Pasticultores mm -hmm. del Desierto, <laughs> I tried, which is accredited uh, by the United Nations to help solve land right. degradation issues in the steeps, savannas, grasslands, and prairies across the world. In 2018, Alejandro was awarded the Rancher of the Year Award by the Quivera Coalition, and he has also featured wonderfully, I might add, uh, one of my favorite parts of the film, uh, in, in Sacred Cow. All right, so our time's short. I'm sure we got lots to cover here, so let's go ahead and get right into it. Uh, first of all, thank you both so much for joining us for the third installment of Hallway Conversations. <clears throat> so... Uh, I'm gonna ask the same question of both of you to start out. Uh, we'll start first with Diana, since Alejandro insisted. So Diana, tell us a little bit about your background and how that led you down the path of regenerative agriculture. Sure, and um, I come at this much like you, Chad, uh, from an interest in both human nutrition and uh, for the environment. Um, and additionally, animal welfare too. So. Um, I started working on farms as my summer job in high school and college on organic vegetable farms and um, have spent the last 18 years of my life uh, living on and involved in some way, either working or cheerleading for um, organic farming, um, mostly vegetables, but uh, we realized quickly that if we wanted to be a sustainable closed loop system, um, as much as possible, we should incorporate animals. And so we started with chickens and then uh, sheep and uh, goats and pigs um, and uh, started learning more about how they interact and, and, and how required they are for healthy organic uh, vegetable production because of their um, impact on, on soil health. And so that was my, um, a farming background. And then throughout this process, I have dealt with some health issues. I found out in my uh, late twenties that I had undiagnosed celiac disease, which um, answers a lot of the reasons why I had so many struggles as a child. Um, and that led me down this path to really look into what diet is most appropriate for humans. And it's such an important topic. We, we you know, uh, many of the ranchers who are watching this have studied the most appropriate diet for cattle, um, but yet most of us are eating a, an evolutionarily inappropriate diet for humans. Um, and so my focus as a dietitian really um, zeroes in on, you know, what did we, what are we biologically meant to thrive on and how can we get as close to um, the, the human in the wild diet as possible. So 
Um, that of course involves eating lots of animal source foods, which enabled us to have such large brains um, and, and plant foods too, vegetables, roots and tubers, um, nuts and seeds and berries and things like that. But the vilification of red meat in today's current uh, diet warfare really got me thinking that no one was really pushing back. And so, so meat is being vilified in three ways. It's uh, nutritionally, it's, it's gonna give you cancer and heart disease and uh, inflammation and, and diabetes and things like that. Uh, environmentally, cow farts are, are ruining the world, of course. And then it's also wrong to eat beautiful animals. So this is like this awful trifecta um, plaguing cattle, which, um, which makes it even worse than butter could have ever been in the low fat era, right? Um, and so that's what led me to make the film. Um, I started writing the book first and then um, realized the importance of film as a teaching medium, especially for uh, young people, millennials, college students and high school students who are being bombarded with misinformation um, from the vegan propaganda machine. And so, um, so I put the book on hold made the film, including Alejandro there, and, um, and then finished up the book and released uh, both the book uh, and the film in uh, just this past year. So pretty recently and um, really, really happy it's done. I'm really proud of the work and happy to be here. Awesome. Alejandro, so a little bit about your background and, and what got you where you are now. Thank you. Thank you, Chef. Uh, it was back in 2004 that I decided to join the family ranching operation. Um, my dad asked me to join it. I was working in IT, um, actually in Florida at that time. And I was waiting for that, actually, for that moment to join the ranch. But I was also curious to know if there was a better way to ranch because I spent a lot of my summers uh, when I was a kid and a young guy in, um, in Chihuahuan Desert and it was always the same story. I mean, uh, drought after drought and suffering and some years we make it happen, some other years we lost money. So I was very fortunate to meet a great uh, people here, actually here in Chihuahua, Mexico, who were all time holistic management practitioners. And that's pretty much actually helped me get into this path of our regenerative ranching. And the results really didn't uh, wait to, to show up. We had really very fantastic results. Um, we, all the ranchers here in the desert are pretty large ranches. So you gotta be pretty uh, smart in, in terms of uh, how to approach and how to regenerate this land. So we decided that uh, one, one good approach would be to find those best areas and focus all our, our effort and investment on those areas and then go from there to the uh, less productive areas at the end. And it's been a very nice journey. Uh, uh, I'm really very glad that I had this community, community of ranchers uh, supporting us. And um, that's, that was actually pretty much what drove me to this path. And 
my dad, who is still uh, alive, 87, he's, he's very excited about all this. I do remember my mentor, Jesus Almeida, when he first time went to the ranch and he said, Alex, uh, it was like back in 2006, he told me, you're going to get a great benefit of this. Uh, but it's not actually only the soil and the cattle and the wildlife and producing good and healthy food. Your dad is going to live longer. He's going to be pretty excited when he sees your ranch every time he comes. I mean, he was really right about it. I mean, those kind of side benefits that we don't think about it. But yeah, it's been a great journey. Thanks for having me here, guys. Oh, thank you for joining us. That's beautiful. So, Diana, you know, my, my background's in nutrition too, so I'm, I'm going to try not to hijack this entire conversation with, with nutrition because, like you said, there's three points that you really focus on in both the book and the movie. But one thing that you had just mentioned uh, during your introduction was kind of the vilification of meat. So for instance, you know, lots of waves were made a few years ago when the IRAC, of course, came out and said, meat causes cancer. Um, I think it was something if you eat meat, red meat and processed meats that uh, increases the risk of cancer by 17 to 18%. So to the lay person or the consumer, that's kind of shock and all, right? Like, oh my gosh, if I eat a steak, I have a 17% higher risk of developing cancer. Can you explain though the nuance behind that and talk a little bit about relative risk and exactly where they're getting their information and how they came to that conclusion? Yeah, totally. I think this is the biggest um, misperception and the, and the media is really um, uneducated when it comes to reporting on science, um, especially when it comes to nutritional science. Uh, so most nutrition science is based on observational studies. Um, so they're not experimental, meaning um, a randomized control trial where you have one population eating one diet and then uh, another population eating the exact same diet just without meat. That actually doesn't happen. Um, and so observational studies are just looking at what, what causes, um, sorry, what associations can we see between um, you know, this population and this population just to sort of maybe draw a hypothesis for further research, but it absolutely can't prove cause. Um, and in the case of cigarette smoking, and this is what those researchers use to back up why they think their observational studies are so significant. In the case of cigarette smoking, we know that those who smoke have a 30 times higher uh, chance of getting all cancers. But in what they found through this observational research with processed meat was that um, the average human has a risk of colorectal cancer of 5%. All of us, you know, generally have about a 5% risk. And if we eat five slices of bacon was the, was the dose um, every single day for the entire rest of our lives, our chance goes from 5% to 6%. But that's reported as a, you know, 18 or they'll round it up to 20% higher risk but that's not even two times the risk. So if we were to do it by percentages with smoking, it would be a 30,000% increased chance of getting cancer from smoking 
compared to an 18% chance with every single day eating bacon. And the other confounding piece we have in here is that observation, people lie on food frequency questionnaires. It's not a reliable way to collect data. Um, and there's just so many other factors. They found that in some Asian populations, it was actually protective to be eating ultra-processed meats. Um, so uh, it's, statistically, it's completely irrelevant to even uh, be concerned about anything unless it's at least twice the risk. Um, and so it's, there's so many flaws um, in nutrition research and especially when it comes to meat and cancer that um, you know, in the context of a healthy diet with plenty of fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables with some exercise, there's, there's no concern at all with eating some bacon or, or certainly not with fresh red meat. Right. The one thing that gets brought up a lot when I have these conversations or like the, the heterocyclic amines, well, what about when I grill? They say that that increases the, and I always come back, well, have some broccoli with your steak because that, that counteracts the heterocyclic amines, you know? So it's, it's, it's a tough conversation to have sometimes because it, it, it's really hard for people to take what they've heard and put that in the context of what the actual facts are. Totally. And there's been some, uh, some people also saying, well, if you want to restrict red meat intake, then you'll live longer because there's certain compounds, you know, with the telomeres and all this. And, um, but we know with aging people that sarcopenia is one of the, you know, the number one worst thing. And that's when your body uh, starts eating its own muscle tissue to get more protein. And so, um, you know, we have to be looking at not only longevity, but quality of life. And the most important thing is to actually have muscle um, and eat at least double the RDA of protein for anyone over 40 in order to maintain um, the muscle that they have uh, as they age. Alejandro, I don't know if you just saw, but a, a question came in uh, on Facebook for you that is says Alejandro, regenerative grazing question. You said you started in 2004. How do you assess your progress during these past 15 years and how do you measure your success? Yes, <clears throat> I think we have to see it uh, within a holistic context. Versus the social, um, you wanna improve your, your family relationships. And uh, the beauty of this, of doing these um, holistic practices is that we're always talking about uh, exciting things. We're always talking about, oh, see that new grass or oh, see this uh, much uh, better rate of infiltration. Oh, see my grass is greener than, than my neighbors. Oh, I mean, so many exciting things. Oh, see all the wildlife that has been grown. Uh, all the living things from one side on the on the um, on the profitability of the ranch uh, most ranchers are not profitable period so we can talk about sust sustainability and recovery uh, um, but if we're not profitable then uh, we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to sustain ourselves so that was really a key point for me to lower my inputs uh, and that's actually, uh, we've been able to do so, even though the, the few past years we've been having lower precipitation than the average. So the average of the ranch is 
well, supposed to be 10 inches per year, we've been getting eight inches, 10 inches, five inches. We keep covering more areas with grasses, with perennial grasses. And, and we pretty much haven't really given anything to our cows, but what the ranch provides. And um, community, um, actually, I'm always open door with my neighbors. Um, it's up to them actually to start regenerating the ranches. But I have one neighbor who actually I talk to him very often, probably more often than my wife. And he's, I mean, he's, he's getting in, he's getting into, you know, more on this. And uh, it's exciting when you start seeing your neighbors getting on board. We also work with several organizations, uh, mostly bird organizations, uh, conservation. And they're very excited about the number of birds actually migrating from Southern Canada, Northern uh, uh, US to uh, uh, overwinter here in the Chihuahuan Desert. Actually, I was talking to Gabe Brown the other day and we actually have the same birds, probably same bird specifically, um, nesting there and, and overwinter here. So a lot of exciting things, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a great journey, but we actually started with holistic management back in 2006. It took me a couple of years to convince the foreman, to convince my dad. One of the benefits that I have is that my dad is a, a banker and he said, yeah, just show me the results. And he's been excited about the results. That's funny, you mentioned Gabe Brown and he says that his, his neighbors look at him like he's crazy and here you have your neighbors uh, coming to you asking questions of how they can get, how they can do it too. So may, maybe you've got the magic touch. You need to talk to Gabe about that. <laughs> um, so definitely, question, definitely. question for you, Diana. So you mentioned um, quality of life and needing muscle. I also hear a lot that our, our, our current RDAs for, um, for protein is already too high. How much protein should we be eating? And maybe give us a little background about how you as a dietitian, how you would recommend protein intake to some of your clients. Oh, it's such a good question. Um, we, uh, first of all, animal source proteins are far superior to plant-based proteins. And I should just, you know, we should just start with that. The profile of, uh, so protein is made up of amino acids. There's several different amino acids that make up protein. Um, and animal source protein has the right types of proteins that are um, very bioavailable, usable by our bodies. Um, much better than plant source proteins. Um, so when you look at grams of proteins on the package of, of beans versus on, on the steak, it's the steak that is uh, gonna be much better absorbed by our body. Um, the RDA for protein was set way back um, a long time ago um, based on what they called nitrogen balance studies which are highly variable and not very reliable. Um, and it's actually the minimum to avoid catastrophe. Uh, so right now it's set at 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. Um, but because Americans 
don't know how to convert to kilograms and, and all this. Uh, many people have done it for them and have made the conversion for women um, based on an ideal body weight of 125 pounds um, and men on an ideal body weight of 154 pounds. And so when you calculate the RDA for protein, you end up at about 45 grams for women and about 55 grams for men. Um, but the average weight of American women is over 160 and for men it's about 195. And so when you adjust it for reality, you're much closer to about double those numbers. And so in my nutrition practice, I deal um, primarily with weight loss um, and with um, metabolic health and gut health. And for all of these populations, what I've, what I've seen is that they're all benefiting from way more protein than they're currently eating. No one's coming in even eating the RDA of protein, let alone the levels that I recommend. And so we start at about double the RDA, which for women, I just try to start them at at least 100 grams per day of protein. And that's not, uh, for those watching, that doesn't mean 100 grams of weight of the food. It's 100 grams of protein, which you can actually track using some online apps. And uh, what it looks like in terms of real food is about four to six ounces of animal source protein three times a day, which is way more than um, the, the current population is eating. And, um, and the great thing about protein is that it's satiating, it makes you feel full. And animal source protein is, is incredibly nutrient dense. It has almost everything we need um, as far as vitamins and minerals. And so when you increase someone's protein, they're less likely to eat other things because they're so full. Their, their cravings for junk food actually just naturally goes down. And because they're so nourished, they also have less cravings for other junk foods. And so the, their overall caloric intake goes down because they're eating less of the other foods and protein is so, uh, animal meat is so low in calories anyway, that the weight naturally just falls off. So that's my trick actually. So um, everyone watching now does not even have to book a consult with me, just up your protein. <laughs> Um, and I'll start at a hundred, um, and then kind of inch it up, uh, with men, I'll start a little bit higher usually. Um, and really again, focusing on the meat. And so that's when we, when we hear messages, like we need to eat less meat, I get really concerned as a clinician because when people eat less meat, it's not like they're replacing that with fresh fruits and vegetables. And I'm, I'm not against fresh fruits and vegetables. I think they're really awesome, but Generally, when people eat less meat, they have more cravings for what we're all too much overeating as a population, which is ultra processed food that is low in nutrients and really high in calories. And that's why Americans are 70% uh, of us are obese, overweight or obese. And, and I'll, I'll ask a question here in a second to, to come back to that as well. So hold that thought. Okay. Um, so Alejandro, you, can you describe to our audience, what is the difference between conventional grazing and regenerative grazing? Where do those differences lie? Sure, Sean. 
in uh, conventional grazing, which actually was the way it used to be uh, done uh, when ranching started. You just um, put your cows in a large pasture. You remove your cows. Yeah, we started with a very nice um, biomass or grasslands. And then uh, cattle start because the use of fence, fences uh, on a big pasture, cattle start overgrazing and overresting uh, individual grasses. And that start degrading the land uh, slowly but surely. And then we start blaming that it doesn't rain anymore. And it's certainly not the way, it's not that way, but it's also that way. Because remember that 40% of, uh, of the rain that we get inland supposed to be uh, generated inland by, by, by all the uh, photosynthesis. Once we start to certify our land, we're gonna get less rain. We're gonna attract and we're infiltrating less water and so on. Uh, that versus uh, re regenerative grazing is actually something I always tell uh, mostly ranchers, but most people is we're dealing with nature. Our job is more related to a job of a doctor because we're dealing with life. And whatever your place is, is in constant change. So you're not staying on the same spot. Whatever your actions are, you're going forward or backward. But if someone tells me, no, I'm about the same as 10 years ago, no, you're not. I mean, you're better or worse. And that's a challenge of being a regenerative rancher. You have to recognize that things are going down or some, a few of them are going better. And regenerative ranching is actually a mimicking nature. I mean, in very, very few works is mimicking nature. What do nature do is, is this, uh, in, in the case of the America, is North America, is the bison moving uh, often, uh, working the soil, fertilizing, uh, trimming the grass, and then returning until the grass was recovered. And that's what we're doing. Actually, in many ranchers, we're only using one species, the cows. But I think we will be much better off if we use multi-species, the same as nature. But yeah, one is like uh, the conventional, uh, conventional grazing is more like, okay, we will be on top of nature. And, and regenerative ranching is more like we work with nature because it's mother nature and we need to follow what, what she's telling us. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, question here from, for Diana. Ethical case for meat seems like a really prickly topic prone to emotions, feelings, and beliefs. How do you talk to people about the ethical case for better meat? Um, so there's a reason why it's uh, the last chapter in our book, because I don't think that you can really have an intelligent ethical discussion about whether or not we should be eating meat without fully understanding the nutritional consequences of a meat-free diet um, and what it might have, especially for vulnerable populations. Um, uh, and then to understand the important role that animals play in ecosystem health. And so what, what are the ethics of pulling meat away from humans that, that 
need it? And what are the ethics of taking animals off the land and only using industrial chemical monocropping as our food production? So those two things really need to be um, uh, taken into account when we then talk about the ethics of whether or not it's okay to kill something to eat it. Um, and so we kind of, we touch on it a little bit in the film. Uh, our goal was never to win an ethical vegan over uh, with our argument in, in the book or the film, um, but to just lay out the case that there's a lot more nuance to the story than uh, meat is bad or meat is good, right? It's, uh, it, it depends on how it's raised. Um, it depends on just so many different factors. But if you, uh, and I think Lear Keith did a really good job at the end of the film um, saying that, you know, given that we know death has to happen in order for our food to, to be there, um, our, only, our only choice then is, are we gonna be the death that kills everything? Or are we gonna be the death that um, brings more life essentially is what she said. So uh, with regenerative agriculture, one cow can provide almost 500 pounds of meat. That's pretty amazing for one life. And that one animal also increased ecosystem function and brought more life to that area. And so to me, the diet of, of least harm, which is um, what a lot of uh, vegans and vegetarians use as their um, moral ground, which I think is quite noble, um, but I would argue that a diet of least harm actually must include large ruminants on grass um, if, you, if you really want the least amount of death to happen for your life. Well said. So Alejandro, one, one question that I think is really pertinent is when you're dealing with regenerative agriculture, how do you know if you're going forwards or like you said earlier, if you're actually going backwards, how do you gauge that? Yeah, thank you, Chad. Um, one of the skills that you have to develop as a rancher and any of us, I think we have lost big time that skill because of all the technology that we have and we're sometimes far from nature but by observing you'll see that i mean we strive uh we always say that we work for what we want we don't come and here and try to kill because it's invading or some uh, invasive grasses what we want to just we want trail grass and also, obviously, we have, we have the better, because if you look at nature, how succession, even in, even in, in, in uh, crops, even in irrigated land, you're gonna just jump from bare ground to perennial grasses. If you bring some seed, perennial seed, to my ranch, and then just throw it in the, uh, expecting for, for those grasses to, to, to grow, it won't happen. I mean, the, the natural cycle is you go from uh, bare ground to weeds or forbs and then to annual grasses and then to perennial grasses. That's one way we know uh, that we are uh, actually going into the right direction. Uh, 
And we are also, as, that's why we promote adaptive grazing because you're always adapting. I mean, remember we're ranching in the desert and you have to be very, very flexible. One, you go to a different direction or then you skip some paddocks because it did not rain or you used to give one day there, but it didn't rain or rain a little bit. So you just provide half a day. So that's the kind of flexibility that you need to do ranching in the desert. And um, yeah, that's, that's how you actually figure out whether you're going forward. This is or the next one to show up uh, when you are degrading the land. It's not only bare ground, is you start seeing the, the mist of perennial grasses, more annual grasses, more weeds, bare ground, and woody species. So what we conventionally do, we kill the mesquites and we keep killing the mesquites and we keep throwing uh, tax dollars into killing mesquites. But the bottom line is long term. Diana, so a question just popped in for you from Sherry. Can you address the difference in the amount and the types of fat in 100% grass-fed versus grain-fed or confined animal feeding operations? And can you also address the additives in processed meat? So this, this, the first part of that will be really interesting. <laughs> um, so... Uh, when you look at the fat profile of grass-fed beef and, and typical feedlot finished beef, they both have about the same amount of saturated fats and monounsaturated fats. Um, the polyunsaturated fats, the, the ones that the omega, omegas fall into, is a very, I'm, I'm using my hand because I'm picturing a, a pie chart here. Um, and, you know, so you've got, you've got the biggest by far chunks are going to be uh, saturated fat and monounsaturated fat. The polyunsaturateds are a very, very small sliver of the fats in a steak. Um, and that's the same both in, in grass-fed beef and typical beef. Um, and then when we look at the research, uh, it's, it's a little conflicting. We've got some studies that show uh, significantly more omega-3s uh, in grass-finished beef than in typical beef, but there's some other studies that don't necessarily show um, across the board that grass-finished beef always has um, more omega-3s than omega-6s. Um, but it's, it's a little bit like saying eating organic carrots will give you more protein and that's why you should eat organic carrots because nobody's eating carrots for protein and nobody should be eating their steak for omega-3s because it's a poor source of omega-3s to begin with. Um, so it's like saying, you know, two pennies is twice as much money as one penny. Um, it's still not a lot of money. And so even in the studies that show twice as much omega-3s in grass-finished beef, you can still, you would still need to eat eight pounds of grass-finished beef to get the same omega-3s that you could get in a three ounce piece of salmon. And so when you look at it in the context of an overall human diet, let's say someone eats beef three times a week, um, my argument as a dietitian would be that th the best way to, to increase your omega-3s would be to eat fatty fish um, and fresh fruits and vegetables. 
And your best way to reduce omega-6s, which um, uh, are the pro-inflammatory uh, fatty acids that typical Americans get too many of, um, would be to eliminate ultra-processed food from your diet. Um, sorry, my dad keeps trying to call as I'm talking. Dad! <laughs> um, he keeps interrupting on my phone. Um, and so it's, it's unfortunate that um, it just, that's what, that's what the research shows. Um, I don't know if you want to add on to that because I know you are familiar with the research as well. Yeah, and so a lot of it gets focused then on the six to three ratio as well. Yeah. And I agree with you 100%. It's one penny versus two pennies. There's still not a lot there. But one thing that we have to consider too um, is that most of those fats are reported as a percentage of overall fat. And you may have a higher percentage in your grass-fed but typically a grain fed product is much fattier, so much higher quantity. So while you have a lower quality or percentage, a lot of times they'll kind of, it kind of washes out because you have so much more fat, less percentage, but more fat. So it's kind of the same volume. Right, and so the context of a human eating um, over, over a week's time, um, it's, it's hard for me to really definitively say that you are going to be much healthier by eating grass finished beef, uh, just based on the research we have now. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm that I'm pro feedlot beef and against grass finished beef. Um, it just what it means actually is that meat is nutrient dense, and the average person that might not have access to regenerative beef should still, if they want to give their kids a leg up in life and, and get them some B12 and some iron they should be feeding their kids beef. The whole system is, is broken and um, uh, it, we need major improvements, but, uh, but I don't necessarily from a nutrition perspective think that just because it's finished on a feedlot that it's inferior. Um, and then the ultra processed meats um, and additives and things like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> people say, oh, I don't eat deli meat, but roast beef is just sliced steak. It's not like it's, uh, pro you know, a hamburger is processed, but it's just ground uh, meat. It's not like it's pumped full of, you know, McDonald's hamburger is beef, salt, you know, and pepper. It's, it's not, you know, pumped full of lots of other things. Um, so definitely like cheaper hot dogs, I would be concerned about fillers in those or cheap sausages. Um, you know, probably have uh, a lot of uh, artificial preservatives and things like that, but um, I'm not that concerned about the nitrates and bacon um, that turns out in the human body that, that they're, they're neutralized pretty quickly. Um, and so I just don't really stress that as much. I think the real villain is ultra processed foods, is box dinners, is, um, you know, fried chicken that people are getting. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that's the problem. It's not, um, you know, whether or not the beef was finished on a feedlot or it's a burger versus a steak. A question came across for Alejandro and I, I would actually, I want to start this with Alejandro and, but kind of pose it to both of you guys because um, one of the anti-livestock arguments I hear is 
water consumption. So the question for Alejandro is how do you provide water to your animals, but also what's the deal with, you know, people saying, well, cows consume, you know, one hamburger is 300 gallons of, of water or whatever, whatever that number that keeps get, getting thrown around. So if, if you guys could address that, that'd be fantastic. Um, I start, is that okay? Yeah. Diana. Um, yeah, that's one, that's one of my favorite uh, topics. Actually, um, Late in uh, 2018, we were in uh, attending a convention to combat desertification in India. And we, uh, a friend of mine, Juan Pablo Almeida and I approached uh, some of the delegates from Germany. And, you know, they may say, ranchers, what are you doing here? You're actually <laughs> damaging the whole thing. And they, they told us, well, you know, you're consuming too much water. And I say, well, just give us a chance to give a presentation to you. And we did an infiltration test at the ranch. Uh, it's a very practical infiltration test that you do to see how many inches you can infiltrate. So there's a huge difference um, on, on a well-managed uh, rangeland and a conventional rangeland. So we took two spots um, in one that we actually been managing for a few years, uh, pretty, I mean, properly managed, rational management, we're, we were able to infiltrate 18 inches per, per hour. We don't even get that train, but we're ready for it. And on the other spot, the bare ground, uh, we're able to infiltrate only two inches. So the thing here is that if you actually uh, make the difference between the two and they multiply it by the size of a ranch, then we will be able to provide water for a full year, all the water needs for a full year for 100,000 uh, uh, people. Um, that's pretty amazing. So we have to, we really want how much water the cattle consumes, but how much water the cattle properly manage is going to be able to infiltrate. Mm -hmm. Now, I think along the, along the same lines, uh, the question of how we provide water for cattle, we used to have only ponds, but they were very unreliable. And going back to the sanitary ranching, holistic management, you're going to start infiltrating more water. So your ponds are going to get less water instead of more water. So we start building uh, a water system with uh, tanks and troughs and water pipe and that rely on wells. Uh, that's the system that we have right now. Mm -hmm. Diana, do you like to chime in on that, on the water situation? Sure, and I just wanna add too, because I've personally been to Alejandro's ranch while we were filming um, and it was incredible. And he kept saying the whole ride from the airport, wait till you see, people think it rains more just on my ranch, wait till you see. <laughs> and it was like, we went into the Garden of Eden from, I mean, it was really blew my mind. The, the camera guys were fascinated. Um, it, it was the, the ponds that he has. I mean, we're driving through just badlands of crusted desert. And then you get to his ranch and it's just lush and humid. Um, it, it was really remarkable. Um, 
But when they, uh, going back to your question about water and, you know, maybe how to defend cattle usage of water, um, we, I have a graphic at sacredcow.info that um, shows this really nicely and it's in the book. Um, and, and also the demonstration with Jason Roundtree in the film, I think those water, um, water demonstrations are really cool when you get to see the infiltration um, with, with soil that actually, you know, has grass roots in it versus just the dirt representing monoculture. Um, but when we look at livestock, uh, the water usage is mostly uh, green water and green water is just water found in the vegetation and part of the rain cycle. And so the, the blue water usage is actually a, a very tiny fraction of the actual usage that cattle have. Um, blue water is like when you look down at a map and you see blue, like the lakes and streams and aquifers and things like that. And so, uh, but even when they're using that blue water, they're urinating it out and they're spreading the moisture throughout the the land with their manure as well. And so it's not like they're just sucking it in and it's going away. Um, but so it, it's, it's quite um, challenging for me when I see graphics showing that it takes 10 bathtubs full of water uh, to make your quarter pound burger when it's, we're not really comparing apples to apples there. It's not like cattle are competing with us for drinking water. Um, and actually, when they're well managed, they're increasing the water holding capacity um, of the soil as opposed to cropping, which actually just increases runoff and pollution into the rivers. So, oh my gosh, we've got about 10 minutes left. And I, I mean, we could talk forever. And we've still got quite a few questions to get, here, get to here. Um, before we get to the questions, I, I have to bring it to the movie real quick. Because one of the most, like I said, one of the most beautiful parts of the entire film was the, in, in my opinion, was when you were on Alejandro's ranch. And the, just, there was almost a dichotomy of the anti-meat propaganda portion that was so chaotic and just shock and all. And then all of a sudden you go to Alejandro's ranch and it was almost meditative to listen to him talk and you guys walk around the ranch and the beautiful part about, oh, look, there's a little mushroom here in the desert. You know, I was just like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, so first I, that, I just wanted to mention mm -hmm. that, that I just thought that that was such a beautiful part of the film. Also, I wanted to commend you for not just being shock and all, but everybody in the film has doctor before their name, PhD after their name, the, the extent that you went through th both the book and the film to have experts and science that support your stance was, was awesome because I don't think we get a lot of that as consumers. It's, it's all, how can we be as polarizing as possible to sell product? Um, that would be a good lead into, if you could just touch really quickly on Diana starting with you how you feel about the, the plant-based meats and some of these meat alternatives that are in our face all the time. 
<laughs> well, I'm still waiting for uh, a letter from the Impossible Foods legal team uh, to arrive at me for using their promotional footage as um, ammunition against them in my film um, because there's there's nothing I, I, I want to believe that they think they're doing the right thing um, but you know the reality is there's a lot of profit to be made in these products um, Beyond Burger is twice as expensive as organic grass-fed beef per pound um, there's a lot of greenwashing happening um, and it's not comparable nutritionally. Um, you know, they, they're hanging their hats just on the carbon emissions piece, which um, is so reductionist and so unfortunate. And that's why I really, you know, appreciate Alejandro showing the mushroom in the, I mean, you can't just look at emissions and argue emissions and say meat is wrong. You have to look at the at the holistic picture um, and the overall you know ecosystem function. And I mean, Alejandro sent us so many uh, videos from this trail cams of all the wildlife we had to go through and all the eagles that he's seen on his ranch and everything. Um, you can't possibly have that kind of biodiversity on a pea farm or soy farm or whatever it is that is makes up these fake meat products or or even the um the ingredients for lab meat um i talk in the book a lot about how it, it i mean and and i've had many conversations with russ about this too it just makes no sense when we have photosynthesis and you know we can capture the sun's energy we can, uh, we can grow grass, we can uh, have cattle grazing on land we can't crop, uh, eating food we can't eat and turning it into the most nutrient dense food for humans. That's pretty amazing. And it's, I find it just so unfortunate that the, um, you know, these very well-funded um, companies are, are really pulling one over on consumers. Um, and I go to a lot of the food shows. So I'll go to the Natural Products Expo, um, you know, as a, as a dietitian um, and influencer to just look. And, you know, these plant-based plant milks are, plant-based everything, it has completely taken over these. And they're using this ethical halo of, you know, it's clean and good and pure and um, painting meat as if it's dirty and bad and barbaric. And um, there's a lot going on behind the scenes there. It's, it's really, it's, it's not okay. Alejandro, anything to add to that? Basically contrasting yeah. your rant versus um, that. Yes, yes. You know, when I walk um, into my ranch, there's so much knowledge on all the plants are, are here, uh, all the native, um, mostly Apaches, uh, knew a lot about the plants, what was good for this, what was good for that. Now we know that over the 150 plants that we have on the ranch and that the cattle and sheep eat, all those secondary components are part of the meat. 
So how, I mean, we, we cannot go on some of the plants, we cannot just eat, go and eat directly. I mean, is the beauty of uh, grazing in this particular case in the desert, we can bring all those secondary components into our nutrition and that's an, in a very uh, easy way to, to eat, which is the beef. And yeah, that's one of the exciting things, you know, about uh, raising cattle in an open brand that you ended up uh, feeding someone a high nutrition uh, product. So we've just got a few minutes left here. I think that this might be an excellent question that came in to end on. Start with Diana. Diana, what would America and our food system truly look like if half of our conventional farmers would adopt holistic regenerative management over the next decade? Wow. Um, I, that's a great, I mean, first of all, I think we'd see much healthier rural America. Um, and that's something that, um, you know, Alan Williams talks a lot about uh, you know, when we see all these boarded up small towns, stores and everything, it's really agriculture that kept these, these towns alive. And we've been taken over by a monoculture of big box stores in addition to monoculture agriculture. Um, and, and so I think we'd see a real resurgence of the vibrance that rural America really used to be. Um, and can still be instead of, uh, you know, just uh, any town USA, which is what I see now when I, when I drive to pretty much any location in the US. Um, we'd have a much healthier population that respected farming. I think we'd have a lot less polarization of urban versus rural people um, and, and just a lot more tolerance in general um, as a society for nuance um, and, and different views. And so I, I see it as healing for the land um, and for our, our bodies, but also like a spiritual healing of, of bringing together different uh, I'm sorry, I'm like going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but, but basically just sort of healing broke in America. Alejandro. Yes, uh, we talk about the exciting things and I think one of my goals uh, since I joined the ranch was to bring um, or build a home for all living organisms from the very top, which is the golden eagle to the very bottom which is like the mice and mouse. And now we know that there's much more life in the soil than there's above the soil. So all those exciting things and being able to build, I mean, to actually uh, live off the, off the land, build a home for all the living organisms and to help uh, people who are actually doing the same. And, you know, most rural people are struggling to, to, to make a living. And that's, that's really, as Diana said, very spiritual and very uh, motivated to keep doing it. And I, I should add too that um, uh, I was uh, 
the chief of staff of a senator um, reached out to me and saw the film and, and read the book and um, is trying to form a committee right now, um, trying to get regenerative grazing on public land um, and has invited me to help with this and um, Alejandro as well. Uh, so uh, we'll be working together, hopefully on uh, really getting an amazing fleet of regenerative farmers out to teach uh, all the ranchers out there how to do regenerative techniques um, as they graze public land. So I'm really, really excited about that. That's fantastic. That's great news. I'm glad to hear that. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, I mean, it's great to hear that the movie and the book is reaching people who can move the needle, so to speak. Um, so thank you so much from, I, I know from all of us mm -hmm. at Grassfed Exchange for putting yourself out there. I know it hasn't been easy for you and you're kind of getting it from both sides. You know, you're getting a lot of support, but it's also the critics are coming out of the woodwork. So, I mean, thank you so much for, for taking the steps to write this book and to make this film and, and get it out there um, and to get Nick Offerman to narrate it. I have to mention Nick Offerman because <laughs> that is awesome to hear his voice narrated. Yeah, and I mean, personally, he's a massive supporter of all of this, like truly believes in all of it. So he's a great ally for us to have. Absolutely, fantastic. Well, we got about a minute left. Do either of you have any closing arguments or anything that you wanna say about regenerative agriculture that you want everybody to know before we, before we have to say goodbye? Well, one of the reasons um, I, I shot with Alejandro in Mexico was to show scale, not only brittle environments, but also scale. And um, I know one of the big criticisms I hear often is that, well, this is, this, is, this is nice, but it's only a very small percentage of the meat that's produced here. And, um, and I always push back by saying, you know, so was organics and look what happened. Um, so just because it's a small percentage doesn't mean that it's not worth fighting for and that it's not a good idea. Um, and I've just been, you know, I think COVID really has shown us how important people place their, their meat. Um, uh, and, and everyone I know who produces meat has been sold out ever since COVID hit. I, people are really, this, this couldn't have come at a better time, um, the film during this, during this time. So um, that's all I have to say, I guess. Alejandro. Yeah, thank you, Diana. Um, well, obviously, I'm very thankful for the opportunity and for you to come to the ranch and be part of that great film. Actually, my oldest um, daughter actually loved the, your, your, your movie and um, your film. And we want to help uh, people, ranchers mostly, uh, to bring hope. We don't really bring any techniques or how-tos but first of all, to bring hope to the people actually producing our food. That's a great place to end. So I, I wanna thank everybody for joining us in this valuable and timely conversation. 
If you'd like to share this hallway conversation with others, know that all recordings are available as podcasts under the Grassfed Exchange Hallway Conversations. To find out more, you can visit our website at www.grassfedexchange.com. We plan to offer these hallway conversations on a monthly basis where we will engage other experts and agents of change. Please look for announcements to come out in regards to our February hallway conversations. And please, if there is a specific topic that any of you would like to see us engage, please feel free to reach out to us via info at grassfedexchange.com or on one of our social media accounts, Facebook or Instagram. Diana and Alejandro, thank you guys so much for joining us this evening and for sharing with us all your knowledge. Thank you so much.